The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Warbirds over Wanaka International Air Show this Easter celebrates 30 years since the very first event organised by the legendary Sir Tim Wallace. Sir Tim will be on hand once again to salute the amazing range of historic and modern warbirds lining up in Wanaka this Easter. The US Air Force is bringing the fast and noisy F-16 Fighting Falcon jets all the way from Japan, plus the C-17 Globemaster. The RNZAF is also planning a big lineup for Wanaka, including the Boeing 757, displaying for the first time in 12 years. There'll be a mass formation display of 13 Harbards, plus all your crowd favourites like the Spitfire, Mustang, P-40, Yak-3, the Catalina, Avro Anson, Grumman Avenger, and all the way from the UK, and fresh from starring in the recent movie Dunkirk, the Bouchon ME-109. This promises to be the one Warbirds over Wanaka air show you will not want to miss. Tickets from Ticket Direct. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. On Sunday 4th of March 2018, we had a Wings Over New Zealand forum meet at the Classic Flyers Museum at Tauranga. This is the first episode covering recordings of the guest speakers at that event. The episode was recorded in front of a live audience and some of the speakers used visual aids which of course in a podcast we can't show you so you have to use your imagination a little bit. But for those who couldn't make it to the event hopefully these recordings will be a good alternative. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Classic Flyers Museum here in Tauranga. I'm Dave Homewood. Uh, welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Forum Meet. Um, it's really good to see you all here, and uh, I think we're going to have a pretty terrific day uh, today. There's some really great speakers, and um, yeah, I think it's going to be really good. And I just want to thank a, a few people uh, in my introduction here. Uh, one of them is uh, Andrew Gormley here, who is the CEO of the museum. Um, he's been really, really great uh, with helping me set this up and uh, making this happen. And also uh, Des Underwood here uh, from the um, Royal Aeronautical Society branch here in Bay of Plenty, who's also been very helpful. Um, and Peter Lane, wherever he is, uh, oh, Peter, yeah, uh, has also been helpful as well. And um, I also want to thank Bevan Jews, who's been uh, uh, 
really good this weekend too, and uh, he's the reason why I got here this morning, so that's good. Um, I'd just like to introduce Andrew now, and he's going to give us a bit of a talk about the museum here. Uh, so please give a hand for Andrew Gormley. Morning, everybody, and uh, thanks for coming. Welcome to Classic Flyers. If you haven't been here before, um, have a look around a bit later on. No doubt you'll get a tour of some sort. And uh, as Dave was saying, I'm the CEO here and have been since we opened it. And uh, I like to describe myself more as the, uh, the ringmaster, I think. It's probably closer to the real term of this uh, circus. We've got a uh, small announcement. Uh, we just did a draw a minute ago, and the Stearman ride is going to the guest of Arthur Gatland. So, is that person here? There you go. All right. Nice day for a Stearman ride. Congratulations. Well done. Okay. What have we been up to? <clears throat> Actually, you're welcome to ask, ask questions too throughout any of this if you want to. Don't uh, you know? This is sort of semi-formal. It's not like I'm going to blather a whole lot of stuff at you. Um, though I might anyway. Okay, um, what have we, not, we been up to? Well, we just ran a, a reasonably successful air show, I think. One of our smaller ones. Anybody come to it? Some of you guys were press ganged into it, I know that much. <laughs> and um, as usual, we saw about 8,000 people here and uh, the day went really well because we lucked in with the weather and we were very worried about it, as we always do every year. Air shows are terrible things to run in New Zealand because the reliability factor is a bit sort of light, you know. But it went off extremely well. <coughs> we've got a few different things we're going to do next year, and uh, we'll talk about that some other time. Back to what have we been up to? Well, the boys went and seized the Blumenau 2600 in the Gisborne Aviation Preservation Society's Avenger. Bunch of blimmin' rough guys. Anyway, um, the, uh, <laughs> so some people would have heard about that. We were very proud of that. Um, Restoration, the guys did an amazing job over it, and while running it one day, it quietly went slower and slower until it stopped. We didn't tell the crowd, though uh, the people, the learned people amongst the crowd looked and said, now that didn't look very good, did it? And um, so after that, we went and had a pull on the propeller and went, it doesn't feel very good either. So um, the guys have got it in bits on the floor down there, and I'm, uh, I'm hoping you'll all go and have a look. Well, we put it together from the main sort of power end area upwards um, a few years ago now and uh, made a lovely job but um, we discovered in the midst of it the uh, number 8 and number 12, is that right Bruce? Rods were transposed and if you know a little bit about those things you'll probably realise also there's a bit of a balancing issue with that and a, and a pressure level issue with that and I don't think that helped our cause which was a bit light on oil pressure as well so um, it's, uh, it's done one of the uh, big end bearings bushes and we're fixing that shortly. So it's all grist for the mill, things to do. So uh, have a wee look inside that one and have a look at a few of the other engines we've got sort of lying around there as part of the whole deal. <coughs> so we, um, the number two Avenger also is going amazingly well. And uh, we were very pleased to be able to acquire that not so long ago, as you've probably seen and read and, and, and looked uh, through forums and things over. And uh, our, our job is to sort of bring that back through to the same sort of status, taxable runner, if we can, as the GAPS one, so that we've basically got two taxable runners sitting in the Bay of Plenty, or thereabouts, Poverty Bay as well. Um, right. The place is going great guns. It's because of guys like yourselves helping us out. Um, 
the uh, guys and girls I should say, excuse me, bit of a sexist one that one wasn't it? But um, the, uh, we're just about to attempt, I mean, there's a lot of things we do here and uh, they spread wide and the, and the reason the formula works is because we've got the hospitality component connected to it. It's vitally important to it, it's the thing that brings a couple of million dollars worth of turnover a year into the place. Some of you have heard all that before, well shortly we're about to um, embark on building another couple of meeting rooms just like this one, all right, because we just need the capacity, the capacity, you know, we're at, we're at the stops all the time. <coughs> so the aim is to increase our turnover and I suppose that lovely old buzzword sustainability comes into it. We're, then, we're now then able to um, carry on into the future without guys like me running around um, so much doing what I do and uh, just improving the whole picture for it. With a bit of luck that'll all come together this year and uh, we'll have six or seven meeting rooms in the place, which is marvellous. But later on you go for a tour, lovely people bring in and drop all sorts of things here and, and a lot of you would have heard or seen Bill Jane's collection of scale engines next door in that room over there. Have a look at it when you get a chance. Some of you might not ever have seen them. They're works of art, it's amazing stuff, but no doubt you get get towed through there a bit later on I suspect and uh, so have a look at those, they're certainly worth a look around the place, alright? <coughs> Interesting things coming up, uh, next week a lot of you would be aware of, um, or I had the pleasure the other day of meeting a man by the name of David Ashworth, anybody know David Ashworth? Yes, he's from uh, the UK and of course he is one of the fellows that organised the <coughs> shipping of the um, Bristol Freighter through to uh, the UK, to the Bristol Freighter Aerospace Museum, I think, back to where it was built, actually. So um, we were having a good old chat, and he's uh, currently in the locale for a little while, but um, it coincided with the fact that uh, next week, we, well, yeah, this week, we are up there on Thursday at Ardmore giving um, the Dwen Airmotive guys a hand to shift that stuff because uh, it's got no major home at the moment and some of it's sort of going to head somewhere and some of it's going to um, end up here in storage and some of it we will be working on like several of the Hercules engines and that sort of stuff will turn into projects on um, the Dwayne guys behalf. So uh, we were asking our own crew, some of you might see our APBs come out looking for assistance on Thursday because we've got to take a crew up there and uh, basically shift a whole load of parts so anybody that's able-bodied and wants to come for an assistance level, give us a yell, give me a call, email me if you like. It's, um, it's one of those things that <coughs> under a little bit of pressure, but there's an amazing wealth of interesting gear there and, and we don't want to see any of it end up in the tip. That's the purpose. Um, a week later, we're off to Blenheim to pick up a uh, single-seat vampire in bits, shed find, basically 40 years sitting in a shed and um, and uh, we've got a team going down there, we're just trying to work out, we're having a hell of a struggle with high top containers at the moment, open, open top high top containers in the South Island, they're like chicken's teeth, so, uh, and everybody wants them, they're going to cost a million dollars, but uh, that's if you can get one, so um, I'm struggling with that right this minute, but we're working out how to do it, we've got a team of about 12 of us heading down there um, on the 14th to uh, box these things, this aeroplane up, it's all in bits and all the other bits and pieces that are with it and uh, bring it home. So that'll be an interesting project 
and we'll need a hand with that too. So anybody that wants to come and give us a hand with some of this engineering stuff, come and stick your hand up some other time. We're, we're looking for more and more people that want to uh, get involved all the time in any manner. Any questions? What's the outcome of the Well, our aim with all of them, at the very least, depending on their current condition, is to, um, at the very least, make them taxi and run. Okay? This particular item's got about nine goblin engines with it. All right? I've got a really good one downstairs already, serviceable one. So, um, so the end result, you can see we're, we're thinking, ooh, this will be nice. Um, but uh, it's an ambitious sounding, and I see some of the things that I, you know, that, uh, I'm quoted as saying all around the place, and I go, guys, the aim always is to take them as far forward as we possibly can. And whether we do that, that's another story, but what we do is just keep pushing all the way. Um, and we don't let a lot of things stop us. Some of the things people would think were insurmountable, actually we carry on with, um, because we just we don't listen. <laughs> and sometimes we actually scrape our knuckles on the way. But um, the, uh, the vampire looks to me like it's potentially a flyer. All right? And uh, that's how we'll sort of treat it until we know otherwise. Sir? Oh, somebody tell me, I've forgotten. 5-1? No, 5-7. Five, 5-7, seven. Five, seven, I think she is. Oh, 5751, of course, 57 squadron, uh, number here. Oh no, previous 9-1, RNZ Air Vampire, but captured and put away in a shed long ago and left there. And in good order, complete. Yeah, amazing, eh? Uh, no, it's in bits all around the floor. It's got all sorts of things with it. Horse tack, other engines, Ailerons off other things. Um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. It's lovely. It's those things you read about and dream about, all right? So, um, when you're in this game, anyway. Um, so, we're very lucky uh, to be able to sort of form that deal and get on with it. Um, <clears throat> what else we got? That's, um, I think it's enough almost for a minute, but we've also got, um, most people would know about a, um, a meteor that lives in, in uh, North Auckland. We've got a deal forming with that for it to show up here and go under a reconstruction sort of uh, arrangement. And um, we're, that's just pending at the moment. It's still happening, but it's looking like it's going to. So um, has anybody... Eh? Well, yeah, funnily enough, it's got one, apparently one good doant and one that needs a re rebuild. They both need rebuilding, but um, one apparently was a good one, very good one, So because uh, people have, have looked for that on and off. Um, and uh, so that's a, a keen man having a go at something and we're going to give him a hand to do that and see how it works. Yeah, be nice to see one of those start up and run. Not so sure I'd get in it actually. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'd want the engineering guys with me. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that, that's been out at Sabritsky's. Yeah, that's been out. Yeah. Uh, we will, won't it? Was it not? Oh, sorry, I thought it was. No, no it's out at, uh, it, it was out at Sabritsky's. What's its lineage, Peter? Do you remember? Yeah, it did originally, but um, I thought that, yeah, okay. Did he bring it directly? Gotcha. Ah, is that your photograph that I've looked at then? That's that pup. I've seen a photograph, yep, okay, yep, yep, there's several there on, on various threads. 
But, but yeah, <laughs> Peter's, oops, excuse me, Peter's found them. And um, we've, we've all looked at them and gone, oh, look, that one, that one, that one, you know, of that aircraft. So, sounds correct, yeah, sounds right, doesn't it? Is that right, Pete? Possibly. What's wrong with your memory, man? The, um, I'm the same, they're everywhere, uh, but not meteors. Um, so we're re really pleased about um, what's happening this year. This year's full of interesting stuff, and if it continues the way it's um, been going so far, we're, you know, it's going to be a great year. And uh, we're all going to be a wee bit tired, but on the end of those days, the beer tastes good, doesn't it, guys? So um, anyway, I'll uh, get off the stage. If there are no other questions, sir? The air tourers, they're quietly going together down there in Hangar 5, just taking it a slow burn process, they're going to fly, and strangely enough, it's like anything when you start something, as the years roll by, people keep ringing us and go, Sonny, I've got one of these, do you want it? And I go, that's great, yeah, we'll have that, thanks. And so we're just sort of quietly amassing odds and sods for air tourers, as well as those, as well as those good airframes down there. But I, you know, eventually we'll just have a, a fleet building of those things, because they're sort of semi classic anyway, but still in that area of able to be used currently. So um, they fit a nice little niche there for us. Um, yeah, and our little 130 horsepower aeroplane, while it provides us with lots of things to think about all the time, it's a damn good little aeroplane, that. So, um, yeah, quite pleasing. Why do you ask? What do you got? <laughs> Have I got the deal for you? <laughs> yeah, actually, strange enough, Steve, one of our illustrious aerobatic guys, he's a madman from hell, um, he uh, texted me the other day and said, oh, somebody um, put uh, Charlie Whiskey Alpha through the fence at Timaru the other day at the Nationals, just a few days ago. And uh, I went, oh, God, because I used to actually own that aeroplane. And, uh, but John down in Napier's owned that for quite some time. And he was doing a, how much shall we offer him for it type of question. I said, oh, leave it alone. <laughs> All right. Anyway, nothing else, guys? I'll get out of your face. Thanks very much for coming. I hope you enjoy your day. Cheers. It's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. Andrew, that was uh, really good. I, I had a few surprises there. The, those jets sound really excellent, so good luck with everything. Um, I'd like to now introduce our second speaker, who is uh, Des Underwood. Uh, Des was a, an engineering officer in the RNZF and worked on all sorts of interesting projects, um, and uh, he's going to tell us about a few of them. Here's Des. Thanks, Dave. We'll just get set up. <laughs> you can find it, it's on YouTube and there's a video with me on it to, uh, to uh, really confirm that's, that's me. Alright, um, lovely to see so many uh, aviation faces and uh, very nice to see um, members of uh, my own society, the Aeronautical Society. So um, uh, hopefully in the next few minutes you'll uh, get a glimpse of what we did uh, in the RNZF, both my time as an NCO 
and later as an engineer. This year, um, on the 9th of January, this slide went up and I got a, uh, a note, an email, uh, an email message from Facebook which says you've been named uh, associated with this picture. And the picture is, uh, was posted by uh, Roger Thompson, who comes from Otomoto here in Tauranga, and that's him on the front. And um, I'll let you find where I am. And there's three of us that are named on um, Facebook. But um, this makes 50 years since um, that uh, recruit course uh, and uh, our start in the Air Force. In the Air Force in those days, there were six bases. There were thousands of men and women. I don't actually know. I mean, at one stage, somebody said 10,000. I've no idea. But there was 123 aeroplanes and 15 types of aeroplanes. So uh, it's staggering uh, when you see the, uh, those stats. Um, I'm going to go back one, however I go back one, because there's a story. And the story is this. Uh, associated with this um, recruit course, we had a... Um, uh, a course instructor, his name was Bill Buckle. We were at West Melton, which is the rifle range, at, uh, out, out from Christchurch, and they had a thousand meter rifle range. And we were shooting on a thousand meters. Believe me, the, the, it's this big. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was quite good fun. It was a hot day, we were having a cup of tea, and Bill Buckle decided we'd have a, uh, we'd synchronize watches. So imagine this GSI with the ubiquitous clipboard on one hand, with a cup of coffee in the other, and then deciding that uh, in the middle of that we need to synchronise his watches. So he decided that he'd look at his own watch, which as you've already worked out, um, the, the cup of tea went uh, right down his front. So the disgraced GSI um, um, went on to something else, I think. Anyway, something light-hearted. For me, uh, not going through all this, but um, blow by blow, but uh, a lot of Air Force bases. Started, I started as an Air Force uh, electrical mechanic, went up through the ranks, had a few um, involved with vampires, saw the first Skyhawk arrive at Ohaki in 1970, saw the Canberras go, and in uh, 19, around that same time decided that uh, my boss, who was the maintenance flight commander at 14 Squadron, his name was Gary Cameron, um, I want to do your job. So the answer was, well, that's fine, but you've got to do some tertiary study. So off I went and did that. And it wasn't until 1977 that I was commissioned. But uh, along the way, um, a lot of interesting things. P3 and C-130 um, post-servicing test flights, aircraft synchrophasers, there was a, uh, a box on the I think it was on the right-hand side of the, flight, of the um, flight station, and the, I was the guy with the screwdriver who was uh, making the adjustments. Um, the system worked well, so um, old tech, no digital, and it was fine. The other, other highlight was, um, and we'll get to Andover's in a minute, was the avionic trade syllabus preparation. We had six avionic trades. This is electrical, air radio, ground radio, and instruments and it went on. 
and one of my colleagues from uh, Andover's, which we'll come to, Liz Bilkloff's here today. So nice to see you, Liz. And uh, as a result of the trade syllabus, my uh, star started rising and I was awarded a CAS commendation, that's a Chief of Air Force commendation. But at the top of the page you'll see career hash one. I ended up doing two and I had to go back for the second time to get this little badge which uh, went with the parchment that I'd got awarded in 1976 and I got the badge in 1998. So it was, it was worth hanging in there. And then it was um, a lot, um, posted to Auckland to one squadron and on to Project Takahe. So this was uh, the acquisition of Andovers for the RNZAF and, the de and their delivery to New Zealand. There were um, 31 Andovers made in a couple of different models and about uh, 25 in the Andover configuration, the C Mark I that we, we are used to. The aeroplanes were 10 years old off the production line and most had done nine or 10 years service and had been out of service for a year or so. So it had been uh, in this, at RAF Campbell in Wiltshire. So the deal was, um, 10 aeroplanes for 240,000 uh, pounds each, so I'll let you do the maths, and then on down. The thing that was crucial for the delivery was hiring of uh, ferry tanks, and ferry tanks were bought out, they fitted in the front of the fuselage, and uh, I did a trip back the next year to the UK and there was six uh, of these ferry tanks inside of Hercules, so uh, wasn't carrying much, but uh, lots of space used. And uh, this is um, Andover X645, and it becomes 7621, and Brett's got this harboured at Wigram. You'll hear about from him later this afternoon. Um, Takahi was the, um, as you as you remember, if you're uh, is it an ornithologist, looks after birds. Takahi was an extinct uh, bird that was uh, rediscovered and um, that obviously appealed to somebody in air staff and hence it's got its project name. George Oldfield was, was the detachment commander who sadly is no longer with us. I had a lot of time for George. I think everybody who worked for him did. Didn't mince words, knew what he wanted and told you and told you if he didn't get, if he didn't, uh, get what he wanted. Um, so Paul Cruz went to UK in the detachment, comprised a pilot, co-pilot, Nav and Lodi, and uh, here in the room, Peter Mason was a Lodi on Andovers. So he can uh, test to see whether I'm telling you is right. So um, <laughs> one engineer, and that was um, Dave Rush, and 26 text to Bryce Norton, uh, Another ground crew res at uh, Kemble to deliver the aeroplanes out of storage and then there was a supply team as well. So, uh, As well as uh, doing training, um, we were there in the UK for eight weeks and uh, these are the places I got to. 
So we went to Fairford to see um, Concords and Final Assembly. Bryce Norton was the um, um, British Airways uh, test base, so it had, the Concorde had come in and rattled windows. It was, it was absolutely deafening. And um, we had a visit from Ivor Mackay, who was a group captain, air attaché in London, came up to um, Bryce Norton and said, when are you guys going to take your free travel warrant? From 1926, the New Zealand government had, set, had been sending Kiwis to um, UK to the Royal Air Force for training. And the, um, the quid pro quo was that every month, anyone from New Zealand that had been through the RNZF process, the selection process, got a free travel warrant. So we fronted up to the uh, Bryce Norton travel clerk and said, where can we go on a long weekend? Because we're due, we, due Labour weekend. Uh, she said, oh, you'd probably get to Inverness. I said, yep, sold. So there were six of us that uh, caught a train from Oxford to Birmingham, then an overnight to Edinburgh, and then on to Inverness. We had a Saturday night, I think, in Inverness, trying their um, neat scotch. So... Uh, Kiwis can do anything when they're given a clue. This is what the Andover looked like. Uh, nice autumn. It was cold in, uh, in Bryce Norton. This was uh, October, November. And um, the aeroplane was trying to look after. It was uh, not... Half the instruments looked as though they came out of a, uh, a vampire. But... Um, <laughs> Good uh, air ministry stuff. Uh, the thing that we weren't used to, of course, is the, the big dart engine. Uh, there wasn't a dart in the Air Force, I think, at that stage, because we had darts with, uh, with later with, um, with, with friendships. And um, kneeling undercarriages, that was something new. So here's the cockpit for those that uh, are interested. Um, I would call it um, conventional and uh, not a wiggly amp or a digital control anywhere. In fact, it was uh, as an electrician, it appealed to me that uh, the way that you told which one circuit breaker from another is you reached around behind the, the co-pilot seat and there was a slot with a book in it, and you just looked up the, the book, you looked up the number. Oh, it's the uh, co-pilot's. Um, um, directional gyro or whatever. In fact, we had a problem where the um, there was a flight in New Zealand and one of them started smoking. They went to the book, pulled the circuit breaker and the other one went off. So whoever had compiled the book didn't get it right. As an electrician, I had the job as a senior NCO then to uh, do a 100% check of all circuits in all aeroplanes. It uh, took a while. Um, this is the flight back from UK. The Brits were uh, were uh, very hospitable. In fact, some of them, some of the NCOs, ended up emigrating to New Zealand. Um, the flight was called um, Kiwi 901. There's a call sign. UNA, U, uh, UK, New Zealand, Andover 901, and the rest of the aeroplanes went in sequence. Those are the uh, the stops on the way. There was. Uh, uh, George was the captain, Dick Newlands was the co and the impressed D, 
uh, squadron leader uh, Chubb Roberts was the uh, nav, and Boots Hayward was the loadmaster. So, uh, and there was eight uh, techs on the aeroplanes. That was a way of getting us all home early, so they didn't have to pay allowances for us. But uh, I was the the junior rank at this stage. I was a corporal, and here's an Andover on our second stop at Cairo. What you, don't, what you can just see is under the wing was a, um, a soldier with a Kalashnikov. He had to be paid in bottles of coke and uh, the aeroplane was still there in one piece when we came, when we came to pick it up the next day. Um, moving on down to uh, back to um, Tenga, we've been uh, noted there uh, grass deer fields and back among friends. Um, the first grass airfield we came across was Butterworth, up in Malaysia, and um, everywhere else the, the airfields were notably desert or um, long grass. Calcutta, the grass was this high, and the message was, don't go in there, uh, there'll be snakes and then there grass. So um, this was great to be back among Kiwis. The uh, captain and crew decided they weren't going to take their their uh, two-day stop in um, Singapore. We'd stayed at the Fernleaf as we had on the way out, so we'd travelled to UK by uh, in New Zealand, DC-10 to uh, Singapore, then British Airways, I think, and then here we were back in the Fernleaf again, and then off to um, off to Bali. So there, there's a picture of some of the folks, including Des Underwood sitting on the beach, and um, I've got at the bottom there, after aerobatic antics um, by bats, at night they've got um, uh, lights that shine down onto the beach, which brings the moths, and that brings the bats. And so you get this amazing <laughs> um, aerial uh, antics with these bats trying to catch them. And then, of course, somebody sneaks up on you and grabs you and you jump out of your skin. So the uh, trip to Bali was memorable. So how am I doing, Pete? Great. All right. So this is the message for aviators is uh, it's always a good idea to refuel on arrival, regardless of what time of night it is. Because here we are at Darwin, wanting to get out early. We arrived at dawn. We were waiting a fuel truck. Three hours later, we're still waiting a fuel truck. And I think we left at 11. We had a long day, went to Mount Isa and then on to Amberley. So uh, messages, fuel on the day of arrival, regardless of what's happening. So um, just to wrap up on the Andover acquisition, uh, nine aeroplanes delivered, 76, 77, one delayed in UK, not, sorry, 10, did they, they all get. So the one was delayed in UK, not un-UK for the wing tank mod, so I'll fix that. And the aeroplanes were allocated to one squadron at Auckland, 42 at Ahakia, and then some were configured uh, with conversions and other, in a couple of different um, camo schemes. One you see uh, knelt on the right hand side. So, um, and as I lament only one thing with the Ando, is, is the first aeroplane that came out, 7624, is now a. Um, on fire packet, used for fire practice um, at uh, Fenuapai. Otherwise, I have no regrets and fond memories of the uh, 
and uh, Project Takahi. Moving on. Um, second part of my uh, first career with the Air Force was, um, with, uh, was as an engineer officer and uh, went back to UK for training in uh, mechanical engineering with the Royal Air Force and um, all the there were three Kiwis, um, nine Brits, and they were all commissioned from the ranks. So we all had a, a common thread. There were other uh, courses for uh, degree qualified guys, but uh, that was us. Then back to Shelley Bay and at a staff job, a whole host of aeroplanes to look after, including Skyhawks and Orions. Then to Wigram and um, PTS, CFS, three squadron debt. I had a, a three different, um, not bosses, because my boss was a tech wing, but um, a host of um, requirements from the different um, flying OCs. But proud to say we had more air trainers when I was at Wickram than uh, there'd ever been before. And there was a trick to it. If you've got a, if you've got a night, if you've got a, a um, a night shift, then have your night shift, get all the aeroplane serviceable for the next morning, because that's their job. And don't send the aeroplanes to the next hangar where they do DLM, because those guys are generating your next batch of uh, flying potential. So um, worked work quite well. So the things in red here are the things we're going to talk about next. So red checkers briefly, Mount Cook salvage, um, A4 wing refurbishment, I'm not going to talk about the Armed Forces Award, but that's what I got after 22 years. And uh, then we're going to talk about Project Kahu. And if we get the video working, we'll look at a video as well. And that'll prove that the picture on the first page was actually real. So here we are at uh, Wigram. Beautiful airfield. Sadly, not as big as it used to be. With air trainers in the nicest colour that I think they ever had with uh, red checkered cows, um, a red checkers team led by Bruce Ferguson for three seasons and um, supported by um, a different crew, a different um, red checkers pilots uh, as the years progressed and then behind the um, maintenance team on the, um, in the white overalls. Some notables, um, Bruce Ferguson obviously went on to become the Chief of Defence Force. He was never the Chief of the Air Force. Immediately behind there was Graham Lint, behind him in the centre was um, Graham Lintot, who was the Chief of the Air Force. And then to the immediate uh, far left is uh, Graham Harris. Graham Harris at that stage was a Flight Sergeant Avionics Tech working for me, and he is now the Director of Civil Aviation. So all good people started in, at, in the Red Checkers at uh, Wickram. And uh, we had a scheme where the uh, same techs flew with the same pilots and ended up, um, I flew with the reserve, but uh, it worked really well. There was a television documentary, uh, they seemed to record it forever, and uh, came out in 1985. So fond memories of Red Checkers, 29 displays in those uh, years, most of them away from Wigram, and we ended up becoming weekend warriors. So 
these same aeroplanes would be flying in the morning, uh, it was a Friday morning, and in the afternoon we'd swap the cows over and off we'd go for our uh, trip away. The, uh, this was a, a new challenge, and this is a picture of the western side of Mount Cook. And the, um, the reason that you're looking at it is um, I was given a salvage task. In the Air Force, I really got ordered to do things. You were given a job and just got to do, to do it. But the captain of the aeroplane that um, ended up uh, in, the, in the accident on the upper Empress ice shelf uh, pointed me in the chest and told me to get that effing aeroplane off that mountain. So that's what we did. Uh, so down to the left is the Tasman Glacier. Up to the top is the um, Mount Cook Crest, which is, um, runs along a, a, a precipice. And um, caught in the top, the reason that uh, Mike Crang was there and the crew was they were, in, they were asked to deliver some mountain rescue team to the Empress Ice Shelf because it was the only place that, that was practical to, uh, to as a drop-off point and hidden in ice caves on the, in the crest was a couple of climbers, Angles and Dingle, who were, um, who were trapped there. So we were not involved in their rescue, but we were involved in the salvage of the aeroplane. So I had a team from Wigram, uh, Ken Wells and Keith Adair, Frank, and Frank Parker and others uh, from Three Squadron, and three squadron detachment at Wigram were involved in this operation and they show the pictures now. So this is what we found on the upper Empress Ice Shelf. We were three ticks. We hadn't been on it. I'd been, I'd been on a mountain I think before Mount Titlis in um, Switzerland but that was shirt steep stuff and so not serious. Here uh, fortunately Wigram was equipped with the was the home of the Antarctic uh, uh, winter over gear, so we went to the clothing store and got our gear and off we went. So um, there's the aeroplane and you can see in front of it is actually a hole in the, a hole in the ice. And down to the picture on the right is the, um, the, trans is the ro main rotor and it's my view that the main rotor, as, as soon as it started rolling, the main rotor got caught in that hole, broke the, um, broke the mast and the aeroplane stayed upside down and didn't do anything. So uh, fortunately for Mike Crang, sitting over the, um, you don't see it very well here, but this is the captain's seat and uh, if he'd have let himself out of his straps it would have gone straight down the hole. We never got to the bottom of it. Um, the mountaineers who went down and rescued the, the aircraft battery and the, the, um, the main rotor um, said it just had um, spirals everywhere. Interesting, these um, flags, the mountain guides who were assigned to us to make sure that we didn't get and go anywhere that we didn't, shouldn't have, um, I made the mistake of lifting one out of the, s the snow because this ice shelf is an ice shelf but it was covered in snow and the story went that uh, 
when they went to drop that team off, we got into a, um, the normal swirl of um, the downwash from the rotors and um, ice went every, oh, snow went everywhere. So the ice shelf was covered in ice. Back to, the, back to pulling the flag out, what came up was light. And um, so I put the flag back in. Right. <laughs> I, well, I didn't see the report. Oh, yeah. Well, they were already difficult. Yeah, 10,000 feet anyway. Yes, yeah. True. So moving right along. So that's the um, picture of the team. And we just dropped the main row, the, the tail boom off. So I was the smallest there, so I got to be back inside the rear, inside the rear fuselage to take the bolts out to drop the tail boom, let it drop on the snow. Right behind the snowbank was, uh, I, I never measured how many thousands of feet, but it's a bloody long way. And so, um, yeah, I got a badge called the Southern Rescue Service for, uh, for that, an unofficial badge. The snow was actually quite good to deal with. Uh, we just dropped this, the engine, which is the thing on the left, out onto the snow and um, pulled it away. This guy was the reason, was one of the reasons that uh, they had the problem. This is Bert Youngman, who was the National Park Ranger from Mount Cook. He wouldn't allow Ken Wells and his team to practice in, uh, Mount, in the National Park. So we... He was very generous in providing us with mountain guides to, for the rescue and came up one day and gave us a hand. So that's Ken Wells in the right-hand seat. It was, um, we had some days we couldn't get there, but the exercise was basically pulling the aeroplane down to its smallest parts that could be practically lifted out, leaving the main fuselage to uh, be lifted out at the final, the final step. There it is at Mount Cook. Um, main fuse upside down still it just seemed easier because that's where we could grab it and um, ro main rotor in pieces um, the aeroplane got put down the C-130 was diverted from a air show at Wigram and um, it was in the, the wreckage was in the wrong place so the answer was simple use your aerial crane which is a Huey of course and move it to a place that was easier to get it in the C-130. So virtually overnight everything was back at Wigram and that's what it looked like. So we put the skids back on and um, the, the aeroplane ended up um, back at Wigram. In fact it went to Woodburn where I was destined to go next. Two, three years later it was uh, rebuilt and so um, 03 is one of the aeroplanes that are as, I, I actually don't know where it is, but it uh, went on to uh, do sterling service. So for me, this, um, the next bit was the most challenging, um, technically, of the career that I had with the RNZAF. I was, the, I was involved with the airframe reconditioning squadron, first as a flight commander, then as the OC, and at that stage there was, I had for the Air Force people, I had 164 CPAs to do every year. 
CPAs as a confidential personal assessment and every um, man and woman on the unit had to have one. Fortunately for each rank they had a different time to deliver them so uh, we got through them eventually. The message with this is one repair depot was a major capability. It was like the Mangere or the Christchurch um, overhaul centre for Air New Zealand and virtually nothing went off the base. This is from heat treatment, uh, engine overhaul and testing and um, the overhaul of uh, aeroplane P3 and um, A4. Um, I think the only thing that went off the base was P3 landing gear but uh, I might be wrong. So we're into Project Kahu now and the first for it sort of appeared on the horizon for the New Zealand public in 83 and 85 um, we started the wing refurbishment program which I'll talk about shortly. And this, in my view, was the most technically uh, demanding. There's three spars on the uh, Skyhawk, same as the one down here, and that's got Kahu on it. We took them off and took the spars off and the lower skin off. Um, some of the things were long lead time items, like the new bottom skin, fasteners and sealants and everything had to be done. And um, the thing that you've got to remember with the Skyhawk is the wing is the integral fuel tank. So not only do you have to put it back together right, but you have to seal it. This is a wing with the bottom skin uh, offered up to the, um, to, and the yellow, friction, yellow um, device behind it is, a, is called a, a holding fixture. When we bought Skyhawks from Australia, that came with it. That weight came with them, so that meant we didn't have to do anything. The thing down in the front is uh, the new lower skin and it comes with um, stringers attached to it. Um, but the problem was when we offered this, we had 20 of these skins, all from brand new from Douglas. When we offered them up to the uh, mating um, ribs, they didn't, they didn't mate. We ended up having an engineer come from uh, Douglas to uh, um, do provide concessions to uh, fix it so that we uh, didn't have to wait for a new site. Moving on to the biggest, f the biggest element uh, for Kahu was uh, the prototype phase at Woodburn. And we were looking forward to what we had to do and I told the Air Force that they needed to build a new hangar. That didn't go down very well but uh, the hangar appeared and so we were uh, quite happy. So um, let's see if we can get the video going. Role for active service. But far from becoming an international laughing stock for keeping obsolete skyhooks, the RNZIF AF is earning kudos for its creative modernising of its old aircraft, as John Hart reports. The Royal New Zealand Air Force Base at Woodburn looks a humble setting for one of the big success stories in military aviation this year. But it's here in Blenheim that the RNZAF has stolen a big march on air forces right around the Pacific Basin. Traditionally, air forces spend shiploads of money on their fighters. It cost the Aussies billions to re-equip the Idolaya with the Porsche jet fighters, the F-18. By comparison, our A-4 Skyhawks are the Morris Oxfords of interceptors. The Ormans they have bought them 17 years ago has kept them flying into the late 1980s by lavishing care on them. 
but finally, the Skyhawks are just too long in the beak to continue as frontline aircraft. On the RNZAF's budget, we could afford a total of two F-18s. So the lateral thinkers and do-it-yourselfers in the Royal New Zealand Air Force got together and worked out a way of updating the venerable Skyhawks. And that's why today in Woodburn's hangars, Project Kahu is underway. Kahu is a $140 million refit that won't change the way our 22 Skyhawks look, but will get them and rebuild them from the inside. Now, our team looked at uh, the other options, which were to buy new aeroplanes or second-hand aeroplanes for legacy. Generally, the cost of that was significantly higher than the cost of the update, and in a lot of cases with uh, not much more of a capability. So we are getting uh, almost as much capability as we would have had with uh, something like an F-16 aeroplane, but for a significantly lower price. The Skyhawks are being fitted with a heads-up display instrument system that projects the dials and gauges onto the windscreen directly in front of the pilot. So now pilots can concentrate on flying at treetop level at 1,000 kilometers an hour and keep tabs on their aircraft. The Skyhawks are also getting computer-controlled radars, inertial navigation, and weapon systems. Out goes the old heavy, thick copper wire, and in will go over 5,000 meters of new wiring room for the new digital instruments. The weight saving is staggering. Changing the instruments will let the Skyhawks shed one-third of their present weight. New wings are being fitted since they're the part of the airplane that flexes most and wears out first. The Royal New Zealand Air Force came up with the ingenious redesign of the interior of the Skyhawk. They're using an American firm to draw it up and buy the black boxes that form the heart of the electronics package. And now at Woodburn, the Air Force Base technicians are prototyping the design using three Skyhawks. That means they're stripping out the old bits and wires and making and fitting the new black boxes according to the contract drawings, thereby checking that the plans are right before the remaining 19 Skyhawks are converted. It's really taking us a long way, both uh, mechanically and in the avionics world. Uh, mechanically, we have been asked to press and form and uh, create Componentry that's uh, above and beyond what we're used to, so that's extending us. In the avionics field, it gets us into digital communications, and while that's uh, been uh, a feature of the Orion updates, it's new for us to be doing it uh, in association with a contractor directly, and especially on the prototype. And the RNZAF is resorting to some ingenious cost-cutting do-it-yourself practices. This small aluminium connector box costs 5,000 American dollars to buy from the original maker. By making this connector box themselves, the RNZAF saves almost $4,500 per box. Project Kahu will be good for Blenheim and Hamilton. Pacific Aerospace and Hamilton will use the RNZAF-approved drawings to make the refit hardware and wiring. The civilian aircraft maintenance base for Safe Air has the contract for production line refitting of the Skyhawks. For them, it's Christmas on a stick. Oh, we're delighted. We've worked, um, we worked very hard to get the contract. And uh, when it was awarded to us, we were absolutely delighted because we, we as a company uh, need this kind of stability and, and this gives us stability for at least two years ahead. The Royal New Zealand Air Force rejuvenation of its Skyhawks is already attracting attention from those Air Forces with other old Skyhawks. Many of them recognize that the New Zealand Skyhawks will be serving us well into the 1990s for a fraction of the cost of buying a replacement fighter, new or used. So there's a strong possibility 
that those other air forces might bring heaps of export dollars and their old Skyhawks here for refitting. Already, Singapore has sent observers to Burma to see the RNZAF's project Kapu, which is turning battered old Skyhawks into high-bargain, high-tech ground-attack fighters for the next decade. Moving on to complete, we actually ended up using machined parts a lot. Uh, the Air Force had bought a copy mill, but this is the, the working end of the instrument panel. It ended up with vertical webs with uh, uh, lightening holes in them, but this is uh, three quarters of an inch aluminium plate, and uh, on the right hand side you, would, you will find where the, uh, the instruments, the um, round instruments are, uh, are installed. But this is a heavy piece of gear that you're holding up, the head-up display, and that fits in the centre, which is shown in the next slide. Now, if I get to the next slide. So, um, here's the uh, instrument panel in, and this is uh, Brian Jessett who did it. The thing with the Skyhawk is that it's a small aeroplane, and so you had uh, difficulty, and you had to virtually time the, uh, the time that the guys had access to it. So this is the fit. On the left hand side is the left hand console and um, the uh, 15 switches on the um, control, uh, the throttle control. Uh, centre is the um, main instrument panel and uh, right hand side, the right hand console. So. Well, while you're here, have a look in 6201 to uh, remind yourself of how small the, uh, the cockpit is in, a, in an A4. Just to conclude, um, that's, the, that's the final aeroplane, 6254 was a T-bird of course. It went to 2 Squadron, and you'll hear from the OC uh, of 2 Squadron this afternoon. So outwardly, the thing that uh, distinguishes the aeroplane is the ILS antenna uh, on the fin, and under the ILS antenna is a 3D um, uh, fitting, which uh, conforms to the shape of the fin, and then provides a flat base for the antenna. Without doubt, the most work was done in the nose. There was a picture of it in the video, but um, this is where the, the, uh, the, the digital radar was, and that was the business end of the Navitac system. Moving on to finish. That's the team uh, that was involved, and that's everybody from machinists, painters, um, avionics technicians, mechanical technicians, and so on. And that was our big day, and that is, uh, will be 30 years on the 2nd of June this year. So this was a, a Skyhawk. It was armed with Maverick missiles, uh, the white missile, in the, and then with uh, laser-guided bombs in the, in the, on the centre rack, and then um, sidewinders on the outer rack. So it was a big day at Woodburn. And the culmination was uh, firing the missile at Wairu. So um, when it went on, as it was described in the video, um, basically um, 
4 and 89, 8 and 90, and uh, 6 and 91, and all done in 91. So um, virtually 10 years to do it, I would have, I would have thought. And um, when you're an officer in the RNZF, you get to do stuff, including being the guard commander of uh, the Freedom of Blenheim. And uh, I, it, my number came up, and um, they said, "There's you're doing the guard, so off you go. So um, what the Air Force and the military knows about is parades. We didn't do it a lot. We had a couple of practices, and off we went on our march. And uh, at the end of the parade, there was going to be a mayoral reception, but and the guard commander was to be invited. But the um, the base adjutant who managed it said, "Where were you at the mayoral reception?" I said, "Don't know. You didn't tell me." What do you mean you lost? You didn't see the memo. So I went back to the base with the rest of the team and had a late lunch. So. But uh, I must, I have never been to a mirror reception at uh, Blenheim. So this is the final slide. Um, after my first um, career with the Air Force, I uh, retired, bought a little farm in Blenheim, started as an engineering consultant, moved to um, Hamilton, to Pacific Aerospace, and um, the rest of it is another story for another day. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, my highlights of the Air Force. Thank you. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad, some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. Thank you very much, Des. That was uh, really fascinating, and it's great to see uh, the behind-the-scenes, not only of the the Kahu um, upgrade, which most of us probably knew about, but really didn't know about the guys who actually did it. And uh, also that uh, helicopter recovery; those photos were fascinating, and the story behind it too. So thanks. We've got our, our third speaker next. Um, and uh, it sort of ties in nicely with what's happening in the museum here at the moment with the Avenger um, restorations. And uh, that's Roger Dalziel, who was 
in the Air Force uh, as a pilot and flew uh, Grumman Avengers post-war, which is a, a little-known story. So I'm really looking forward to this one. Ladies and gentlemen, Roger Dalziel. Uh, good morning. Uh, on the basis that we've already seen some of the Skyhawk operation and you're to hear things about Harriers and um, other fast jets later on, I'm afraid flying the, uh, the Grumman Avenger post-war was rather mundane. Um, there was a certain track to becoming a, an Avenger pilot post-war and mine started off at RNZAF Tyree. Now in those days they had a compulsory military training system and various of us were chosen to go to Tyree for a 12-hour flight grading, as they called it. So this is just a representative photograph of the aircraft at Tyree. Um, I would like to bring your attention to the... It is snow on the hills in the background, and in the foreground it's not actually snow, it's frost. Um, so you only need to ponder what it was like flying an open cockpit air aircraft losing, what is it, one degree Celsius per thousand feet of altitude, and it was really cold, really, really cold. Um, so the flight grading was just intended to ensure that pilots could be trained. Um, we had a total of 75 people there. There was one third principally of regular force. The rest of us were compulsory military trainees. Some took no interest in the activities at all, uh, and most of those characters were phased out before the end. Just a very quick um, comment about the rate of pay. If you look at the top line there, over to the right, you'll see airmen recruit were um, paid the princely sum of $11 and, sorry, 11 shillings and sixpence per day. Now, for those of us with long memories, that's about a dollar, dollar um, fifteen per day. In today's money, it's about $75, $80. Just a quick view. Um, after leaving the Air Force, I decided there was no future in doing this. Although, interesting enough, for this particular activity, I had a look back just in the last week or two, I was paid $1,000 a week. Uh-huh. Um, there was 12 of us started our pilot's course at Wigram, and there was a mix of people there with six of us being short service commission people with only four year term ahead and the rest of them, the other six, were 12 year commissions. Funny enough, all the 12 year commission guys failed. So at the uh, multi-engine conversion course, five of us started. One failed that particular course. Um, this would look a pretty good reason for failure, wouldn't it? Um, uh, you notice the two photographs, one of the, uh, the, or the props are quite different, in other words, the aircraft was under power and one engine only, and um, the other engine was feathered, and this is a feathered engine of course, it remained reasonably intact. Uh, just another view of the Devon, um, actually, um, I'd have to say this was, this was all my own doing but I managed to survive this. Um, the flight instructor, um, a flight lieutenant who'd flown Corsairs towards the end of the war, he was the aircraft commander, so he was the one deemed responsible. Um, prior to actually getting to 
this point in my EFORCE career, I'd been taken for a ride in a tiger moth by a local Hunterville young farmer that, as a family, that produced a tiger moth, one of the ex RNZF Tyree ones. And um, it wasn't a terribly successful flight for me because I was airsick. And this character I can remember well, he stood beside the aircraft and he said to me, with you joining the Air Force next week, perhaps we'd better keep quiet about this. <laughs> well, this character had three brothers. I saw them over the years many, many times and that was never mentioned. Um, it wasn't actually the end of my air sickness though, remarkably enough. When I was on my wings course flying the Harvard, I would again be, I'll call it air sick, but in point of fact that I would actually throw up, if you like, and then I would actually be capable of continuing the flying. Um, so that coupled with the fact that I had some fairly indulgent instructors got me through wings course all right. From multi-engine conversion to Ahakia on the Devon, we did about 20 hours there, and I was posted to 42 Squadron. And we mentioned earlier on um, about the cross-section aircraft the Air Force had. Uh, at this stage, 42 Squadron at Ahakia had the two Avengers. Um, the next aircraft looks like a, um, a Devon, doesn't it? But uh, on 42 Squadron, we always referred to it as doves. They had two doves. About the only difference between the Dove and the Devon that I was aware of, uh, the Dove was about 160 kilograms lighter. It did fly slightly different. Uh, the next aircraft, obviously, the Devon. We had four of those on Squadron 4 multi-engine conversion. Uh, the DC-3 um, for VIP work. And then one Harvard at the end, but the Squadron actually had two of those. This will look familiar to some of you particularly locally here. This is the one of the Avengers cockpits. That's an Avenger photograph. Um, actually not taken at Ahaki, but taken at um, Wigram. Just an air-to-air -air photograph of the Avenger. Um, during my period there on the Avenger, um, obviously it wasn't a dual control, so I, I was taken for a ride in the Avenger uh, by a flight lieutenant Duncan Cumming. We did about 20 minutes and then I hopped in the machine and had my turn. Um, prior to actually flying the aircraft, the other pilot and I, who joined at the same time as I did, we spent a lot of time um, sitting in the Avenger running through the checklists. Uh, we didn't use written checklists, we used the more memory checklists and we just saw one another through these checklists. Um, <laughs> My later career, I think I would have preferred to have gone the written checklist way, but however, in the Air Force, we used the checklists um, by memory only. Um, at one stage, we did have both Avengers um, 04 and 27 serviceable, so Terry and I uh, did a, uh, an Avenger formation. We weren't terribly good at formation, as you could see. Uh, and the unfortunate aspect was that we didn't have another aircraft up with us to take air-to-air -air photographs of the two Avengers in flight. Um, partly the reason was that this was the only time we actually had the two of them serviceable. So for the rest of the eight or ten months we were there, we never had the opportunity to fly both of them again. Another one of the formation. Uh, those of you who can or recognise Avenger wings will 
recognise that that left wing shan there is a is an Avenger wing. Um, after I'd done my own flying, um, I was given plenty of time for consolidation. Not all of it was just doing circuits around Ohaki or learning to fly climbing turns, ascending turns, etc. I took the engineering chief from um, 42 Squadron up to Rupay for a quick look. We just went round and round the mountain a few times, and that was that. Um, we, well, I did probably three practice drogue toes um, over a Hakia. Um, I always thought that really I had very little input as far as a drogue toe was concerned. I just sat up here in the nice comfortable seat, flew the aircraft, whereas down the back there was a team of people, um, usually armourers, that um, laid out the, um, the winch cable and deployed the drogue. Later on, I'll mention about um, the number of shells expended by some of these activities to hit the drogue. Uh, and the point being made is that we used to tow the drogue at something like 16 to 1800 metres behind the aircraft. Uh, we did hear very early on that if we were flying for the Army, um, the Army always would have an extra crew member on each gun just monitoring that the gun wasn't in fact trained on the, or they weren't being trained on the aircraft, um, which was reassuring. But then I did several toes also for the Navy and we never heard what measures they took just to prevent the um, weapons from training on the aircraft. Um, this is actually a photograph taken at Whangaparaa Peninsula. Uh, the, the guns themselves were all um, the um, Bofors cannon, um, 40mm, and in this particular period um, I flew something like 13 hours um, flying time or tow time, and these guys unfortunately never ever hit the target. But then, um, bear in mind that the target itself was um, just like a, a windsock. I, describe it as. At the forward end it was about 400 mils high, at the rear end um, 600. So it's pretty small in the length, um, probably six metres. So these guys firing these cannon uh, had a pretty small target to fly at. Um, the first tow I did actually was for the RNZAF cruiser, the Royalist. Now, the Royalist was known as a, a then um, high-sophisticated anti-aircraft ship. So I can remember arriving overhead the ship, seeing it at, there at the northern reaches of the Hauraki Gulf, and uh, I was immediately struck with the problem as to how I was actually going to tow this target over and above this ship. Um, the two characters that had been on squadron before us, uh, they haven't left us with it any information as to how to um, um, do a circuit above a ship and so I actually did some experimentation I'd have to say. Um, one or two of the first runs I did and tried a dumbbell turn at either end and that didn't seem to work very well. I used up a lot of spare space. So I finally found the idea was just to do a racetrack over the ship with using the ship as the central point. Um, and insofar as the um, the firing outside the range was concerned. Well, I 
came to the conclusion that it was the ship probably had better navigation than I did. So uh, uh, the responsibility for where the shells uh, uh, lay um, and fell was completely with the um, uh, with the navy. Uh, the second tow I did, yes. As it's difficult to hear the question in this recording, I'll repeat it. A gentleman in the crowd asked about a story of an anti-aircraft shell actually hitting the wire between the aircraft and the drogue. I think I'm going to mention that right now, actually. <laughs> um, I, I took the aircraft down to um, Woodburn, sorry, to Wigram, and to do a tow for an uh, anti-aircraft battery that was on Army Bay, um, sorry, at Godley Head on the Banks Peninsula. Um, and the, the guns there, they were, I, I managed to extract some information they were 3.7 inch, and these guns actually were on the anti-aircraft mode. They were capable of firing something like one round every three seconds. Uh, so a, a, a battery of four um, guns put down a fair amount of lead. Um, these ones at um, Godley Head actually had what they said were electronic um, predictors. Now, of course, to shoot down a target, you had to have some sort of prediction that you could make on where the target would be after you'd fired the shell and it had travelled to the, the target itself. So supposedly at um, Christchurch here, they used an electronic predictor. Um, so I guess it was just a um, forerunner to a, a, a computer. Um, but we're still talking 1959. Uh, and yes, indeed, um, We'd actually just started our drogue tow and the target disappeared completely out the back end. Um, I did ponder actually later on, probably in the last week or two, whether or not that actually completely um, uh, demolished the target. But we preferred certainly to think at the time that, in fact, the lucky shell had hit the, uh, the, um, the cable itself. Um, I did manage to extract some figures from, from the Army. Um, the first hit actually took um, 59 rounds to achieve that one hit. Um, at the end of our tow time, which was about one hour 30 minutes, I dropped the, um, the drogue over the top of the gun position and they found there were numerous other hits, obviously, on the um, target itself. Um, and during the day, again, according to some figures I extracted, they'd fired something like 300 rounds at us. Um, so it goes to show the difficulty, I think, of actually um, hitting a small target like that. Um, perhaps I could have mentioned the tow for the Royalist I did uh, once or twice during the day. I actually unfastened my shoulder harness and I could look around. I, I was capable of looking around in those days. I managed to look around and actually you could see the puffs of the shell explosion behind the aircraft. Obviously, from the cockpit, you couldn't actually see the, the drogue itself, although the operator down below the aircraft could actually look out at the drogue. <coughs> um, this particular tow I did here at Whangaparaa, where they used the 
40 millimeter cannons only. Um, this was the only time where I actually did what I call some low level flying in the machine. Um, and it was quite approved in that I had to clear the target area. So this is just one photograph I took during this process. Um, I did actually meet one trawler in the area and so how do you tell a trawler in the in a, when you're in an aeroplane to exit the area? Well fortunately we did have a um, flare pistol actually set up on the right hand side of the cockpit of the Avenger and this fired coloured flares at about a 45 degree angle. Um, so I flew beside this trawler at one stage and fired at this red flare out the front of him and he took no notice of it at all so I thought well perhaps one can do something better than this so the next time I fired up the uh, uh, prepared the uh, the flare pistol and did a fairly close by circuit of this character and I'd have to say I endeavoured to actually land the flare on his deck now I don't know how successful I was but very soon after that I noticed the uh, uh, the vessel left the area. So pe perhaps it was moderately successful. I did another tow for a RNZ in Royal New Zealand Navy ship, the Canary, and a Royal Navy ship. Um, again, um, the Royal Navy ship was a, a known anti-aircraft uh, vessel, uh, but again, without any hits, but um, if I can just spend a bit of time talking about how much faith I had in uh, Army, uh, sorry, n uh, Navy radar. Uh, any ex-Navy people here? Oh, you probably won't mind hearing this then, but I, I actually went down for a what they called a radar tracking exercise in the Cook Strait. Um, and the Royal Navy was actually described as a sloop, but an anti-aircraft sloop was departing Wellington Harbour and it needed some radar tracking. Um, so um, we received advice of this on one particular day. I flew down the next day after giving an ETA to the ship. Oh yes, I'll be overhead you at such and such a time. So I established BHF contact with the ship on my way down and um, my ETA was actually remarkably close. At this stage I could see the ship ahead of me and so I confirmed to this character that yes, I was going to be over there pretty much on time. I rode overhead this naval vessel, this fancy anti-aircraft, high radar resolution machine, started doing circuits around him. And naval um, RT phraseology was rather different than ours, I found. Um, I realised after encircling him for some time, he was actually asking me where I was. So at this stage I looked down, I was only at about 1,500, 2,000 feet, I looked down and said, uh, said to him, look, is your number on the side of your boat F421? And about two minutes later he said, yep, he said, that's, that's us. So I said, well, come out and have a look on deck. I said, that's me above you, I've been here for 10 minutes. Um, the, probably, the last air-to-air, -air, or the last um, tow I did of any interest was actually an air-to-air -air with one of our own Sunderlands. Uh, and there was a fairly good case for having what I'd call a, a, a mutual briefing where we both attended the same briefing. But no, we didn't. We, uh, 
we thought we'd brief in flight, so we both found one another out to the coastline to the uh, west of Murawai. And then it was a matter of saying, well, how are we going to do this? So I said, you look, you, you just patrol up and down and I'll position the Avenger. Uh, in this stage, they were using the, the beam gun, which fired from a point just behind the wing. So effectively, I had to formate on this Sunderland, but rather ahead so that the target tow, and we, we weren't towing with anywhere near the length of uh, cable. Uh, we'd only tow to about uh, 400 metres. So uh, then we uh, <laughs> we then considered now how are we going to do the turns at the end of each run? Because I had to stay to seaward of them because the requirement was for the guns to be fired um, obviously to seaward. So I had to stay to seaward of this machine all the time. Um, however, we, we made it um, with some difficulty. The Again, even though I, I flew right beside this 0.5 machine gun on either side of the Sunderland, never did they get a hit. Um, I did have one interesting period coming back from one of my Pongaparoa um, trips where um, to release the, the drogue, effectively we just put up what we call a, a drogue release on the cable and if you like, this release just stayed in the one point. We just pulled the cable through it. So it wasn't very difficult to drop a, uh, a cable over a known position. You'd just fly overhead the position and say to the guy in the back, I'll drop the release now. Um, but coming back this one particular day, we um, the quick release didn't work, so there we were with 1,800 metres of cable out. But we did have one other means of actually cutting the cable, and that was what a cable cutter this machine, this little device did the same thing, travelled to the end of the drogue or at the end of the cable and then cut the, uh, the cable line. Unfortunately in this question um, on this particular day that didn't work either. Um, so there we were towing about 1800 metres of cable. So I thought well the obvious thing is to land the aircraft at Whanuapai. Well there was a couple of problems here with um, a short landing would be required at the far end of the runway. The cable was 1,800 metres. I think Fenerbahce was then about 2,100 metres. Might have been an interesting flight. And of course, I had no idea at that stage with, with a, um, a short landing in process with probably approaching at about 75 or 80 knots what the cable droop or what the drogue droop would be behind the aircraft. Um, so I was just lining up for this endeavour and hoping I wouldn't drag the cable through the approach lights and fortunately the, uh, um, uh, the re release mechanism um, worked as it should have done and the drogue was left way out in the countryside which I had to go and retrieve. <laughs> photograph here, this is my last photograph taken in, on the Avenger. Uh, I just gave the camera to a navigator who was flying in as crew member on a Devon between um, Ohaki and Wanganui and he just took this photograph. Uh, at this stage again I didn't know I was within three days of the aircraft being um, retired and to me it was just a normal flight, there was nothing special about it. So I took another pilot for a ride and we left here, we went down to the low flying area and it was quite interesting the low flying area, I flew along the, the beach not doing anything too startling. It, 
I didn't quite achieve 200 knots, but I achieved about 196 indicated. Uh, but I'll swear to you, I could see the fuel gauge diminishing. Um, I did have another interesting period where I had diverted to Woodburn at one stage and flew direct Woodburn to Ahakia the next day. Um, I flew the flight at about 1,000 feet, um, thinking, well, these Avengers had flown all across the Pacific on the single engine, um, so 1,000 feet didn't seem too bad to me. Until a couple of weeks later, um, I was actually doing a flight back from Fenopai and we're flying along quite happily. And I can remember at the time, actually still to this day, thinking I was going to beat my best time from Fenopai to Ohake, which was about one hour. And on the way back, um, the engine stopped. And when I say stopped, it stopped absolutely dead. There was no warning, the engine stopped. Um, fortunately, the other part and I had experienced some carb, uh, carburetor icing, so I just immediately applied carb air heat and the engine re re regained its nice faithful beat within seconds. Um, the other aspect of my flying, probably as a finale, one of the final flights I did was from, again, another Fenerbahce to Ohake one. And we'd normally fly to the, um, the west of Ruapehu and the weather wasn't particularly good this time so I decided to fly to the east of Ruapehu. Round about overhead Waiuru, um, ahead of me I saw um, quite a lot of cloud you see. So I thought well how, how am I going to cope with this? So I thought for a while and um, you know, it's one of the things you're not supposed to do when you're flying a VFR aircraft is to go IFR. But, however, I do say I did. So I put on climb power, pointed the aircraft to the south and started a climb. Now, I'd pass Rupehu over to my right. I knew all I had to do was climb over the Taihapi Hills. Um, your friend probably who was in the back, back with me probably wasn't aware of this. Um, However, I had flown the area numerous times because we'd done a lot of Army cooperation with the Army out of the Wairu airstrip. So I was very afraid with the, the terrain. Um, then the um, air traffic system at Ohaki had what they call CRDF, cathode ray direction finding. And there was just a nice little aerial array at the airport. And if anyone called up on a particular radio frequency, this would indicate on a cathode ray screen and obviously would indicate the direction from which the radio signal came. So apply a reciprocal to that and of course that was the heading if you like for the aircraft back to the back to airport. Um, now fortunately one of my predecessors who flew the Avenger did mention to me once and I managed to retain this. Um, he said look when you're coming back to Ohakia just from a VFR flight he said just casually call them up now and then. He said, just ask them for a homing signal to go get back to Ohakia. So I thought, well, now this is the real time to use this because it wouldn't introduce any interest from the controllers. So as I was doing my climb out of um, Waiuru, called Ohakia and said, uh, request a homing signal. They, get, they just confirmed my heading. So I just continued my, my climb watching obviously for carburetor icing, but also watching for um, airframe icing. Um, 
I did attain a reasonable altitude, probably higher than I needed to go, but I could have turned and still um, gone over the top of Ruapehu, and that's about approaching 10,000 feet. So that's an indication of how high I went. As I penetrated further into this cloud, um, got another couple of homing signals, broke cloud, I knew Haki uh, was clear so I broke cloud um, heading towards Overhuntable which again was my home territory and here I am today. <laughs> this is actually the start of the last flight of the Avenger, I'll just give you a quick look at this, here it is on start, here it is taxiing to Hamilton to its last resting place, here it is at Tuapa, again at Tuapa, being transported by the Navy down to Christchurch. Some of the, this might be familiar to some of you folk here. Better come and have a look at this one. No, no, that was that was no pop. The one pop was in was destroyed. This is the one that's out here, 39. Um, taken at Tikawiti, and I really can't put a date on it, uh, 64, 65 I would think. But even showing that I, I don't let anything go to waste in my life, if anyone would like to check out the Venger, I've got the pilot's notes here if you want some assistance. <laughs> Any questions on some pretty mundane flying? Yes? I <laughs> a gentleman in the audience who actually had worked on 42 Squadron asks about the rumour he'd always heard that a cricket team was transported in one of the Avengers during the 1950s. Um, the rumour I heard was that it was actually a rugby team. Um, look, I've, I've, I've thought about that. Look, the reality is at the back end of the Avenger there was a tremendous amount of space. Um, but I always came to the conclusion that, you know, it's probably one of those urban myths that had you put that number of people at the back, the aircraft would have been out of balance. That was always my contention. Um, unless it was a seven aside, and then perhaps it would have worked. <laughs> yes. Bernard Weinstein in the audience said that when he was a teenager he was actually at Fatuapai and he remembers seeing what he thought was a rugby team climbing out of one of the Avengers. So he believes it's true. Um, I, I was always quite sure you could have probably accommodated a seven side, but I don't, I'm, I'm almost positive not a 15 a side team. Yes? In, in, well, obviously, you know, a tail wheel, so it obviously had its similarities. Um, 
in some ways it was easier to taxi than the Harvard in that the, the Ford Cowling um, was actually sloped away from you and you actually got a better view ahead of taxing so you didn't have to weave the aircraft quite as much. Um, but it had one interesting aspect to it and I only again read about this in the last two days. It had a habit of what they call walking. Now I'd never, run, never found this comment before about this the Avenger walking, but what would happen as you taxied and did your weave to clear the nose space, uh, one undercarriage leg would tuck up underneath the aircraft, so you'd be taxiing along on a bit of an angle, So, but, but just with brake application you could stop that, but in terms of flying, look, it was really remarkably the same, obviously there was a lot more mass involved, about three times the weight, about three times the horsepower. Um, uh, a lot heavier aircraft to fly as soon as you took it out of straight and level or stable flight and you actually had to do quite a lot of trimming all the time so if you did steep turns as an example you couldn't just as you could in the Harvard or as I did in the Harvard you could just turn the, t go into a steep turn without re-trimming but you couldn't do that in the event you had to re-trim because um, there was just too much stick force yes Jonathan Pote suggests it could be another urban myth, but he'd heard that it was possible to shoot your own target from a target towing Avenger. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yes, I haven't wondered about that. Um, I did see my target go past once, but the aim was never to never to see your own target. <laughs> Hence, I, I found, as I said, for, for naval gunfire, I just did a, um, a like a racetrack pattern, and for the army, I'd do a, an elongated figure of eight, and um, but sort of tow at about from 140 to 180 knots, and then with slight altitude variations up and down. Um, but just one thing I could mention which really only came to my attention the other day. Um, the 3.7 inch guns that fired on us at Christchurch, during World War II, there were actually 11 four-gun positions of those around Auckland. And to, uh, I'll use the word man, if I may, man those each four-gun positions. The, um, the establishment was for 120 people. 50 of them had to be women. Uh, because women actually did the work on the manual predictor machine that actually decided where the shells would be fired. Just a thought. Any more questions? Yep. Um, the, um, the, uh, what's your preference on the uh, colour scheme? <laughs> <laughs> one of my favourite questions. Well, I'd be biased, wouldn't I? I'd go for the target toe colour scheme. I just, I personally, I look at it and go, it's very unusual, it's very unique, and I think it's very impressive to display on it. And, um, and of course, it's real to us. What's my thoughts? What do you guys think? Well, you've got two. Well, that's right. Believe <laughs> yeah, well, it, that's the other thing. See, it's unique. Every other event will be painted, every other, you know, sort of colours, always. Yeah, they're all pure. It's 
I appreciate any replies by email. We've got the thoughts, not seriously. It's one of those dilemma. It's not our call 100%, but the reality is, I look at that and I go, be ashamed to waste it. Well, well, there's a photograph of it on its last flight. Yeah. <coughs> a gentleman in the audience asked Roger what he felt the Avenger would be like to make an approach and landing on an aircraft carrier, something that wasn't done by the RNZF. Well, it, I think it'd be comparatively easy in that I mentioned earlier on about the approach I thought I was going to do a short landing onto the Fenuapai runway. Um, at the time I was flying here, the other pilot, Terry Mills, who actually flew the last flight, he actually did visit an aircraft carrier out um, to the west of the North Island and he did an approach onto it. Um, never, shall we say, never officially recognised at all, but I think I can probably say. But he, said, he actually said to me later, look, he said, I think I could have landed on that without any trouble. Hamish Affleck asked what was the difference in weight between the World War II Pacific Avenger set up with the turret and everything else on board compared with the post-war version. Oh, they were, they were impressively gutted, yep. Virtually at the back end there was nothing, but then, having said that, we did have the installation of the winch as well, plus, yep. No, no, the top dressing trials were well over when we arrived. Um, and that was one aspect that we were warned about, particularly with 04, that seeing it had had a history of being associated with the top dressing trials, perhaps we shouldn't pull high G on it, um, bearing in mind that the aircraft had been exposed to uh, um, corrosive uh, material. Any more? Don't forget, quick check out the end of the... That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.